Let's ask God to help us with his word. Our Heavenly Father, uh, we pray now that we would know the encouragement of your word, that it would help us to trust Jesus for life and to live the joyous life of following him. And help me to teach your word truthfully and clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. For a while Abraham stayed in Gerah, and there Abraham said of his wife Sarah, she is my sister. When you hear that, don't you think, if you've been reading Genesis, oh no, Abraham, how could you do it again? Saying of Sarah, your wife, she's my sister, inviting the local ruler to take her into his household as one of his wives or concubines. I mean, there might have been some justification for this self-serving, preserving lie back in Genesis 12 when you went down to Egypt. <laughs> Abraham went down to Egypt and he said to his wife Sarah, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. They'll kill me, but they'll let you live. I mean, you just started out on your journey with God then, just getting to know him. And Pharaoh and his Egypt was a significant international player. And what were you, a wandering pastoralist experiencing a bad season? You might have had some justification back then, but not now. I mean, you have a covenant with God. You've seen God's faithfulness in preserving your life and providing you for you for almost 25 years. You have demonstrated significant military capability in defeating Kur de Leoma and his allies when they took your nephew Locke captive. Oh, and you have access to God. We've just seen that in chapter 18, where you stood before the Lord and were heard by him. And yes, you have a promise from God about a child, a son, your son, to be born to Sarah. How could you fall back into this old, self-preserving strategy? Not only does it honour Sarah, dishonour Sarah again, you're actually putting in jeopardy the fulfilment of God's promise, that very specific promise God made to you. And Sarah, verse 19, your wife Sarah will bear you a son. Verse 21, my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you. Do you hear that? Sarah will bear Abraham a son. And he's not just a son. He's the one with whom God will establish his covenant. He's the ancestor of the people God will have as his own. The people, the descendants of Abraham, through whom God will establish his promises to Abraham. Those promises, which are actually God's response to the sin of humanity, those promises that include the promise that in a world burdened with death and decay, in Abraham all the nations of the earth will be blessed. It's through Abraham and his offspring, Isaac, that God will reverse the curse. But if Sarah is in Abimelech's household, how can she conceive a child to Abraham? If she's in Abimelech's household, Abimelech's wife, whose child will any child she has there be? And remember, that promise of a child to Abraham and Sarah has a definite time frame about this time next year, 12 months. They're on a countdown to fulfilment. 
But Abraham, fearful, saying she is my sister, let Sarah be taken into Abimelech's household. The promise of a son to Sarah just shows us how much more serious Abraham's action, his fearful, faithless sin is this time. This time, Abraham's actions threaten to completely frustrate the fulfilment of God's promise, which is a promise for the whole of creation. More, instead of Abraham being a blessing to others, we see that this fearful faithlessness threatens death to someone who has received him hospitably, is basically innocent, threatens death to Abimelech. You are as good as dead because of the woman you have taken. She is a married woman. Throughout the ancient Near East, adultery, you see, was a capital crime, and Abimelech knows that. He knows the truth of what God says. He knows what taking another man's wife deserves. That's why he protests his innocence. He did not knowingly, he says, take another man's wife. Did he not say to me, she's my sister, and didn't she also say, he's my brother? But he also knows that even his ignorance of her status would not have spared him if he had had sex with her. Abraham, by his lie, has put another man's life in jeopardy. In fact, he has put the well-being of a whole people in jeopardy. For king and people, we see, verse 9, are inseparable. Instead of being the blessing God intended Abraham to be to others, Abraham's actions actually brought sickness and the threat of death. It's hard to overemphasise how serious a failure Abraham's saying, she is my sister, is. This fearful self-protection is no small sin. It threatens death to the innocent and jeopardises the promise on which not only his happiness but the blessing of the world depends. Harm, hurt and hopelessness will be the outcome of Abraham's action until God steps in. But God came to Abimelech in a dream one night and said to him, appearing to Abimelech is dramatic, direct action by God. But God's already been active, preventing harm. Verse 6, I have kept you from sinning against me. I didn't let you touch her. He has ensured that <coughs> there is no threat to Abraham's being the father of any child Sarah conceives. He's kept Abimelech from even touching Sarah. And at the same time, God has saved Abimelech's life. Oh, and God then ensures that Sarah's returned to Abraham, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet. God's instruction is clear and the warning against disobedient also very clear. It's God who protects and restores. And in telling Abimelech Abraham is a prophet, God also protects Abraham's life. For he has made Abimelech's life and health depend on Abraham and his actions. You see, when Abimelech thinks of a prophet, he's not thinking of an Elijah or Isaiah. He's thinking more like well, someone more like Balaam in the Numbers, whom Balak hired to curse Israel. Someone who has access to spiritual power by being listened to in heaven. 
and who can direct that power to achieve his purposes. And so by telling Abimelech Abraham is a prophet, God's made sure that Abimelech and his people will treat Abraham well, that they'll want to be on his good side for their own safety. And that's what happens, isn't it? Yes, Abimelech remonstrates with Abraham, why did you do this to me? But then he patiently listens to Abraham's not very satisfactory answer before bestowing on Abraham a significant gift and giving him the run of the country. Live wherever you like. Most importantly, Abimelech publicly vindicates Sarah, acknowledging his error and her integrity with a payment of a thousand shekels. You are completely vindicated. And that was a very large amount of money. It's hard to get a comparison. A labour in old Babylon, which is roughly contemporary with this time, will get half a shekel a month. And so a thousand shekels is actually 166 years worth of work. That's actually quite a lot of money, isn't it? This is a handsome gift, substantially enriching Abraham. Disaster is averted because of God. He undoes the consequences of Abram's faithless fear. Because of God's action, Abimelech's life is spared. The possibility of fulfilment of God's promise remains. Sarah can still be the mother of Abraham's son Isaac. And all the nations of the earth can still be blessed in Abraham. And yet, there is something unsatisfactory about this story, isn't there? I mean, Abraham sins. We know Abimelech's complaint, you have done things to me that should never be done, is justified, and yet Abraham is not chastened. Not only is he unharmed, he emerges from this story with his wealth increased and his status enhanced without even a rebuke. He seems to profit from this cowardly failure. And doesn't that make you feel just a little uneasy? I mean, we've just learned in chapters 18 and 19 that God is the just judge of all the earth, the God who acts justly in all things. Yet here it looks like God's commitment to his promise means that God's rewarding bad behaviour, acting inconsistently with his justice that gives to everyone without exception what their actions deserve. God's commitment to his promise and his choice of Abraham, yes, we see here, is wonderful, extraordinary. But it raises the question, does God have to be unfaithful to himself to be faithful to Abraham? That would be a shocking conclusion, God stopping being God to rescue us. And so this incident deserves a closer look, doesn't it? Let's start with Abraham and the reason he gives for his actions. Sadly, nothing here will throw a good light on Abraham or suggest he hadn't sinned. In fact, Abraham's reasons reveal further the nature of his sin, show his actions to be the fearful failure of faith. It is Abraham replied, I said to myself, there's surely no fear of God in this place. They will kill me because of my wife. So Abraham prejudges those he's staying with allows himself to think the worst of the people of Gera, and then he allows the wrong he fears they will do him to justify wronging them. 
by deceiving them about his wife. That's pretty weak, isn't it? I mean, we don't usually admire somebody saying, oh, I thought you'd hurt me, so I thought I'd hurt you first. Well, that's not morally admirable, is it? Abraham allowed his actions to be guided by fear, not faith, fear of people, not fear of God. Though we've seen God hear his prayers in chapter 18, Abraham doesn't pray. He just lets those fears circulate in his head and direct his action. Oh, and secondly, verse 12, he justifies his action by saying that Sarah really is his sister. But that truth is actually no justification, is it? In context, it's actually a deceiving half-truth at best that leaves out the most important piece of information for Abimelech and his people. He left out then that Sarah is his wife. You can't claim you told the truth when you leave unsaid the very thing that really matters. In this case, the key piece of information that would have prevented Abimelech from committing adultery and being at risk at death. Abraham's self-deceived if he thinks the truth that Sarah is his sister makes what he communicated about her right. And finally, verse 13, he seeks to justify his action by claiming that this is his settled policy. When God made me wander from my father's household, I said to her, this is how you can show your love for me. Everywhere we go, save me, he is my brother. <laughs> and this last sentence is just so revealing, isn't it? It means that under the pressure of his fears, Abraham has fallen back into his old self-protective strategies. Despite all that God has shown him of himself, despite all that God has promised, despite his experience of God's faithfulness to him over nearly 25 years, and that is so disappointing, isn't it? And so like us. When faced with our fears, so often we fall back into the fearful self-protectiveness that despite our experience of God's kindness as believers in Jesus, forgets what God has promised us and chooses to rely not on God's commands to direct our behaviour, but on doing what seems right to us to keep us safe. So we fear being hurt by another. We fear them failing us, so we cut them off or never let them close. get close. We choose not to love them as ourselves, forgetting that actually God has said he will always love and keep us. Or we fear failing in some service that we see a need for, maybe something small like Sunday school or reading the Bible with someone so we don't try, forgetting that God has said he'll work all things for our good and that includes, well, our failures if they happen. We fear someone learning embarrassing or shameful truths about us and so we live a life of pretense, of hiding. We forget that when we trust Jesus, we need have no shame. We've been washed clean, his beloved children. We fear being thought of ill by others, and so we keep quiet about God's standards. We fear being left out, and so we fall back into compromising our behaviour to please others. In our fear of people, we sin. In his fear, Abraham sinned. In fact, Abimelech's apparent innocence makes Abraham's sin and God's blessing of Abraham seem so much worse. Yet, when we look more closely at Abimelech, 
He's not as righteous as he first appears. Then Abimelech, king of Gera, sent for Sarah and took her. Verse 17, we see that Abimelech already has a wife and female slaves, concubines. So why is he taking another woman? And notice, there's no mention of marriage, no gifts to her brother that would formally acknowledge the new relationship. There's no negotiation, no bride price. This is an action of power and lust, or perhaps greed, a desire to obligate this rich sojourner to him, to create an alliance. And Abimelech's innocence is not from any moral consideration. It's actually because God made him unwell. He is innocent by inability. And the fear that he and his officials show is not fear of the Lord that Proverbs or Abraham speaks of. It's the fear of the dangerous position they're revealed to be in because they have messed with someone now revealed to be spiritually powerful. Abimelech's innocence and subsequent right action, they're the fruit of God's work, not a righteous heart. Thinking about Abraham and Abimelech just reinforces what we've seen, that the good outcome is all God's doing, that he's the one who's the hero of this story, the one who deserves praise. By his action, the promise to Abraham and Sarah of a son born to them will be realised the very next chapter. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the very time God had promised him. This happens only because of the Lord. It's the Lord who enables Sarah's conception in their face of their age and infertility. It's the Lord who prevents the harm Abraham's faithless fear threatened. And it's the Lord who ensures there is the necessary public vindication of Sarah's honour as Abraham's wife so that all will know, including Abram, that God has kept his promise of a child to Abraham. <laughs> the, the interest in that a gift of Abimelech was not in enriching Abraham. It was in ensuring that the promise is realised that Sarah's child is Abraham's. Oh yes, and it's the Lord who, we see here, has kept this covenant, the covenant through which all the nations of the earth will be blessed. It's the Lord who's gracious to Abimelech. Abimelech's intention's clear, but Abimelech's way was the way of death. The Lord restrained him. And the Lord gave him a way out to healing and fruitfulness. What we see here is that God is faithful and gracious. And it's him and he alone who maintains his plan to bring mercy to a world under judgment. What we see here is that God deserves all the praise here. And yet, and yet there's still that doubt, isn't there? Does God have to be unfaithful to himself to be faithful to Abraham? You see, whether it was the goal of God's intervention or not, Abraham is enriched even without repentance, without having to acknowledge his failure. Yeah, I, I know God is still working on Abraham. I mean, Abraham's greatest test is to come, a test in which Abraham's faith will be refined, as you'll see next week. Uh, and in that test, Abraham, who sins here by fearing men, 
will instead be seen to act in fear of God. I know God is playing the long game in his relationship with Abraham, but that cannot alter the fact that here God does not seem to be acting justly. And as I was thinking about this, I realised that this story, Genesis 20, is deeply disappointing to me. That I was deeply disappointed with Abraham for putting God in this position. I don't know about you, but I would have really liked to be able to read this story as if Abraham was in the right. Do you share that disappointment? Do you want to think this is just a slip-up on Abraham's part, that he really is better than this? Well, when I registered my disappointment with Abraham, I realised something else. If I am only seeing the problem with God's justice now in the story of Abraham, I haven't been paying attention. And maybe my wanting Abraham to be good reveals something about me, about my heart. You see, think, when was Abraham ever deserving of God's kindness to him? He shows him lots of kindness. When was Abraham ever deserving of God's kindness to him? You see, God has always and only been dealing with a sinful Abraham on the basis of grace. Remember back in chapter 15, Abraham's right with God, not by what he does, but by believing. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. He never earned God's favour by what he did. And he didn't justify God's choice of him by living a perfect life of faith afterwards. The justice of God's dealing with Abraham is only guaranteed by God refusing to be unfaithful to himself in being faithful to Abraham, refusing to be unfaithful to himself in being faithful to every other sinner to whom God has made a promise of forgiveness. That's right, isn't it? The justice of God's dealings with Abraham is only ever guaranteed by Jesus' death on the cross. Remember what Paul said in Romans 3, verse 25, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. Those sins of Abraham in Genesis 20, God can leave unpunished and treat Abraham as if he's righteous because God knew he would deal with those sins on the cross. There, God has given Abraham what his sins deserved in Christ bearing Abraham's sin on the cross. There, where God made Christ, his son, the sacrifice for atonement through his blood shedding on the cross. To be gracious to Abraham, to ensure the fulfilment of his promise, God pays the price of being the just judge of all in the death of his son. That's why Paul can speak of Abraham as one who trusted the God who justifies not the good, but the ungodly. What shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? 
If, in fact, Abraham was justified by his works, by being good, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? We've heard it. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, the one who works, wages are not credited as, as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. What we see in God's treatment of Abraham in Genesis 20 is not a cause of unease, but great good news. This is God justifying the ungodly. We see here the wonder of God's grace, that God will do whatever it takes to fulfil his promise to those whom he has chosen in grace. And what it takes is not just appearing in a dream to Abimelech or making Abimelech unwell so he can't defile Sarah. What it takes to keep the promise is the death of God's loved son. And that is good news because every one of us who trusts in Jesus, who believes the gospel, that he's died for our sins and risen again, now stands in, says the gospel, now abides in God's grace. Since we've been justified through faith, that's faith in Jesus crucified, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. We stand in grace. Hear that. God's settled determination is to be gracious to believers in Jesus. God is as committed to fulfilling his promise to you if you're a believer in Jesus as he was to Abraham. He will do whatever it takes to keep his promise to you, even using your mistakes, your sinful failures for your good, and isn't that humbling? And actually, it's better than that. The gospel says God has done whatever it takes. He has given his son to die for us, to secure for us that forgiveness and eternal future that he has promised. And so, says scripture, even now we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Even now our life is hid with Christ in God. Grace makes us so secure. So if Genesis 20 is all about the extraordinary, unstoppable grace of God, why am I so disappointed by Abraham's failure to be good? Why do I so want to think that this is not the real Abraham giving way to faithless fear? And do you know what? Sadly, I think the answer is, I think it's pride, human pride. You see, I want to think Abraham is different from Lot's daughters. In their fear of childlessness, what did they do? They resorted to doing what was right in their own eyes. They act out of that same self-protecting faithlessness that we've seen is Abraham's. <laughs> but I want to think Abraham is different. Do you know why? Because I want to think I am different. That's right. I want to think that Abraham justifies God's choice of him so that I can think I've justified God's choice of me. 
to enjoy his grace. That's human pride. There is a deep-seated human pride in our hearts that wants to think that our faith earns God's favour. And it's not just the empty hands that receives God's favour. There's a deep-seated pride that wants to suggest that our faith justifies God, not his faithfulness justifying us. That is, there's this pride in me and in you that wants glory for ourselves and not all the glory to go to God our Saviour. Deep down, our hearts don't want to humble ourselves before the reality of his grace. And you know, brothers and sisters, that is sin and has to be repented of. It's our deep-seated pride that wants Abraham to be good and our faithless fear. You see, if I really trusted God and his gracious commitment to me as he deserves to be trusted, if I let myself recognise how shockingly determined God is to keep his promise, I would have to stop fearing people and letting that fear dictate and justify my behaviour. I'd have to live God's way, give myself up to God and give up my self-protecting ways. You know, my withdrawing, my refusal to risk failure in service, my refusal to love where I think I might get hurt, my lying where I think the truth is risky, my compromising to win approval. I'd have to give those self-protecting strategies up and while they may make trouble for me, they're mine and I know them and I believe I'm in control when I use them. But to trust God is to lose control. To trust God. In the end, you know, it's actually the only way. The way of fearful faithlessness is death and misery, hurt, harm and hopelessness. The gracious, faithful God is life and brings life. Life is found only in trusting him by trusting his son. Are you a believer in Jesus? Well, it's time to reckon with the depth of God's grace and his fearsome determination to keep his promise. It's time to learn to live with the humbling security of grace. And that means it's time to give up your fearful self-protectiveness that disobeys God's good commands. It's time to abandon your pretend goodness that wants to find security in yourself, your faith, your decision, your obedience. It's time to abandon that trust in yourself that makes you unreal about your frailty, blind to the way your fear motivates your actions, mute where your heart should be full of wondrous praise to our saving God. Are you a believer in Jesus? Well, it's time to live like one by abandoning yourself to our good God by doing his will. You know that will. Denying yourself, taking up your cross and following Jesus wherever he goes, whatever your fears. Read of Abraham's fearful failure and then hear Isaac laugh and give the faithful God the praise he deserves. Give praise to the God who does whatever it takes to keep 
his promise. His promise to you. Who will give his son, has given his son, to keep his promise to you. To be gracious and always gracious to sinners like you and me who deserve death over and over again. Put your hope wholly in him, in his promise to you in Christ, and stop being fearful and live rather in the fear of the Lord and in the joy of being saved by his grace. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word does not hide from us the failures of your saints. And we thank you that in them we can see not only our own hearts, but your extraordinary love and faithfulness. We thank you that you are the God who always keeps your promise. We thank you that your promise is sure and certain. And that in the death of your son you have overcome our sin and you have made it sure it will never frustrate you doing for us what you have said. We give you praise for your rich love and mercy freely given to us in Christ and help us to entrust ourselves to your mercy in doing your will always. Amen.